Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and National Security, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sam Cantor, and today I'm talking to David Oakley. He's a professor at the Joint Special Operations University and author of the book Subordinating Intelligence, the DOD-CIA post-Cold War relationship. Intelligence studies is still in some ways a growing field, and is one that predominantly focuses on external outputs, so things like the efficacy of assessments, the accuracy of predictions, but obviously just as important, and perhaps in many respects, the first step towards understanding those outputs are the internal factors, how intelligence agencies take shape and take form, the internal processes and bureaucracies that govern them, and quite critically, how these myriad of agencies interact with one another. And it's that last point that Professor Oakley's book really lives in. In tracing the post-1991 DOD-CIA relationship, he argues that national intelligence has become increasingly focused on supporting military operations, often to the detriment of larger strategic issues. Moreover, he connects this to a broader trend, the militarization of U.S. foreign policy. He is uniquely suited to tackle this topic. In addition to his academic credentials, he has extensive professional experience in both the U.S. Army and CIA. And with that, David, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, Sam, thanks for this great opportunity. Let's start with uh, your background a little more. So as I alluded to, you had a pretty interesting career trajectory. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it interested you in doing this topic academically? No, sure. You know, some people probably say I can't, you know, hold down a job. But uh, I, I um, so, you know, I, I started off as a field artillery officer in the Army. So, you know, after college, uh, received my commission, went through ROTC, uh, spent about six and a half years as a field artillery officer. Um, and, then, and then I left active duty for a while. Uh, and during that period, I went over to the CIA and I was part of um, their, what they call their uh, uh, CST program, clandestine service trainee program uh, within the director of operations. And so I was, um, went through uh, uh, the training and the certification to become what they call a staff operations officer within the, within the DO. Um, a staff operations officer, you know, at the time there was, there was uh, three basic career tracks within the director of operations. There was the operations officer, which everyone's you know familiar with, the case officer, the one out recruiting uh, uh, spies and assets. There was the collection management officer who received the um, the intel pull from from the asset, and then there was the staff operations officer, um, often referred to as a desk officer, that was providing uh, um, administrative support to the handling of assets from the headquarters. And so um, I did that, some other stuff, helped with some programs. Um, was at the agency uh, for a couple of years. Um, and then I and then I ended up leaving. Uh, as you can appreciate, the, the cost of living in DC is quite high when you, and then when you have three kids, it makes it even more so. Um, and so I switched over to uh, the National Counterterrorism Center um, where I served for about a year before an opportunity came, um, popped up to come back uh, on active duty. And so then I came back on active duty as a functional area 59, a strategist. 
um, and uh, did assignments uh, first at Fort, uh, Fort Riley with 1st Infantry Division. Uh, during that time, I actually um, worked in the interagency again as an LNO uh, in Baghdad, Iraq during a deployment in 2011. Um, after that, it's been a couple years at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, going through Command General Staff College, and then uh, the School of Advanced Military Studies, where I actually started the research on uh, what ended up being my book. Um, during that time, I was working on my PhD through Kansas State, and so continuing the, you know, the research towards that. Uh, after, after Leavenworth, I went over and I served as a, uh, a planner at Army North uh, in San Antonio, Texas, doing Defense Support Civil Authority. Uh, and then when I finally finished the PhD, I uh, was sent over to uh, National Defense University, where I taught at a, a great school called the College of International Security Affairs uh, for about five years. Um, last year, I uh, decided to retire from the Army, uh, left the Army and moved, uh, moved the family out here to uh, beautiful sunny Tampa, Florida. And now I am a uh, uh, associate professor at the uh, Joint Special Operations University, which is SOCOM's educational institution. Uh, we call it SOCOM's Think Do Tank. Well, that certainly seems like appropriate preparation to cover this topic. So diving into this, I'd wonder if you could kind of set some context for us. Now, your book covers the post-1991 period, but obviously the DOD and CIA are both born with the 1947 National Security Act. So what do the first three or so decades of this relationship look like within the context of the bipolar strategic environment that is the Cold War? Yeah, you know, what I found, and one of the things I probably should have mentioned earlier is kind of, you know, what drove me to this. Um, and I'll kind of tie that back into the history of, of what, what was going on and what the relationship looked at the time. And so, you know, what, what kind of fascinated me um, when I started working at the CIA, I knew there was a shared lineage between the, the, the military and the CIA, CIA you know, with, with the shared lineage of OSS. Um, and I knew, I, I knew about that. Uh, what I started seeing was a pretty diverse different cultures between the two institutions. And so I started wondering, you know, how do these two institutions uh, um, who are so different now culturally, how do they, you know, uh, grow from kind of the same seed or have similar lineage, I should say. And so, you know, um, I started looking back at, at the original story of how it, how it began. And so the story between the two really began with the 1947 National Security Act, right? Uh, that was the creation of both the Department of Defense, um, you know, uh, and, the, and the CIA. Um, and, and really in the early days, you know, there was there was a relationship and, and there was uh, some, some, some blending and there has been that throughout their history. Um, but what I found was the first three decades of the relationship was not, although they worked together and, and, and there was a collaboration and then, you know, there was a kind of common focus on the Soviet union um, the relationship was was very much different um, than it was in the later years, especially after the end of the Cold War. And what I mean by different is what I found in the early in the early days, there wasn't this what I call in the book a quasi subordination. There wasn't this huge push towards the CIA providing support to the warfighter. Um, and so, why there was some familiarity. Um, there wasn't kind of this uh, supporting effort, supporting to supported effort uh, to use military terminology. I would also say that during those 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 years, although you know, of course, especially early on, you had a lot of the individuals who were in the early days of the CIA who came from the OSS, which was a military organization. Um, what you what you found during those first three decades, though, is there wasn't this kind of common uh, uh, interaction. What I mean by that is if you go into the CIA today or you come over to Special Operations Command where I work, you will, and you speak to some of the, 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 the professionals, um, you will, 
they will have um, a kinship, a, a, a familiarity with, with the other organization. And so you have special operators who are very familiar with the CIA. They've worked with the CIA. And if you go over to the CIA, you're going to find a lot of CIA officers who are very familiar with the military. In fact, you're going to go over to ADMA, and you're going to see a lot of military folks. Um, that wasn't the case in the first 30 years. So when did this begin to change? In your book, you kind of pinpoint the 1980s and some of the reforms that took place then as a little bit of a pivot point. Yeah, I, you know, I think the, the story is really, in, in my mind, this was kind of surprised me. It's um, when I started doing the research. I, I think it's linked a little bit to Goldwater Nichols. And so, you know, as a military officer, I was very familiar with Goldwater Nichols in the, in the increased jointness in the military, right? And so what I, what I wasn't familiar with was the connection between that and what was referred to back then as intelligence support to the warfighter. And so if you, if you look, and, and the key date I, I identify and where I really begin the story is in 1983 when the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time, David C. Jones, got up before Congress and said, hey, you know, w- w- we have a Department of Defense, but we're really very parochial uh, uh, focused, on, you know, the services are focused on their own equities and we, we, we need to change this. And, um, you know, he was, he was supported in his argument, um, you know, with, with failures, you know, such as the, um, you know, Beirut barracks bombing, uh, issues that happened with Grenada. And so, as I said, I knew that story well. When I started going into the record and I started looking at some of the after action reviews, what I noticed was at the same time that Congress, or that I should say, uh, you know, General Jones, and then also supported by, by members in Congress, were calling for increased jointness within the military, there was a supporting call uh, for increased intelligence support to the warfighter. Um, so, for example, u- utilizing the, the Beirut barracks bombing, for example, uh, when that occurred, there was some, some fingers pointed at, at the agency uh, and others uh, in the in intelligence community, national intelligence, for not providing the right adequate information in a way that it would enable the commander to understand the threat. Um, now, what happened, as many as uh, I know a lot of the listeners uh, will probably be familiar with, is uh, you know, you, after all those complaints, uh, David C. Jones, um, uh, you know, um, making that complaint or observation, I to say, um, you have Goldwater Nichols that, that's passed in 1986. Uh, a few years later, in 1989, you have Panama. And Panama, although it, was, it wasn't perfect, it was much better than what had occurred in Beirut, what had occurred in Grenada. Um, and so there was a, a, one of my favorite quotes that I found digging through a lot of the archives was actually uh, um, by Congressman Ike Skelton out of uh, Missouri, who is very well known as a supporter of joint education. Uh, his name is at the, the library at uh, Joint Force Staff College under NDU, where I used to teach. Um, bears his name. Um, and the, the quote that was fascinating, I'm paraphrasing it now. Uh, he said, you know, we've, we've, we've now fixed the military problem. Then we're going, now we need to, t- we've, we've fixed the military problem. Now we need to turn to the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin that he was talking about was the um, national intelligence support to the warfighter. And certainly that was an illuminating aspect of the book for me. I mean, much of scholarship tends to divide the world into Cold War and post-Cold War. And we look at a lot of defense aspects through that lens so that you demonstrate that the 1980s is actually the beginning of a pivot point was really, uh, in my view, at least an original take on this. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I to be honest, I think that's, you know, if I look at it, that is really the gap I'm, I'm, I'm feeling. I think there was some acknowledgement and awareness that certain points like the uh, um, Desert Storm wasn't an important um, uh, uh, time frame in the relationship. Um, but what I hadn't seen in, in previous scholarship 
was that the relationship in the 80s and some of these key events that that you know we all know about um that 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 drove the goldwater nickels you know was also linked to this intelligence support to the warfighter discussion so as you mentioned 1991 is kind of a seminal year in a couple of respects we have the gulf war which is the proving ground for a whole bunch of doctrines and technology both military and intelligence and then, of course, at the end of the year, you have the collapse of the Soviet Union, depriving the military and intelligence community of the number one foe for the past 40 years. So talk a little bit about that experience for both institutions and kind of the lessons learned that they took away from that year. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the, pointing out those two, you know, the confluence of the, the two events of the collapse of the Soviet Union and then Desert Storm. Um, I, I think it's very important because these really shaped the relationship. And so beginning with, with Desert Storm, you know, um, I think we forget now because we look at, you know, the, 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 the hundred hour war, we, we looked how it turned out. Right. Um, I think we kind of forget how controversial it was at, at the time. And, you know, when, when the decision, when, when George H.W. Bush was making the decision to go to, go to war uh, with Iraq. Um, there, it was a lot. It was very controversial. He was getting pressured by you know individuals like Sam Nunn, who you know was the head of the Senate Armed Service Committee, by David Boren, who was the head of the Senate uh, uh, Select Committee on Intelligence, um, really telling him to you know wait a little longer to allow sanctions to compel Saddam to to pull back from Kuwait. Um, and what was really driving this fear was, you know, we, we weren't that far off from, you know, what it had been like 16 years, 15, 16 years since Vietnam. And so there was this fear of getting into another Vietnam quagmire. There was the ghost of Vietnam that were, that were still present. Um, and so why that was important is, um, and this is really one of the one of the the first most important things that, that creates this this I would say tension that leads to tensions between intelligence uh, and DoD a little bit that leads to change. Um, why that was important is when they actually went into the air war and they um, started bombing. There was a disagreement between the military. I should say central command and um, the intelligence community, specifically the CIA over uh, uh, um, damage assessment, battle damage assessment, right? Um, and so because of this goes to Vietnam, because of this fear um, and this desire of not wanting to go to war, the air campaign was very important because they wanted to ensure that the Iraqis were treated to a point to where you could just move through like butter, right? You could just, there would not, there would be a, you know, less U.S. casualties. Um, one of the things I failed to mention, which I found interesting in the research is, you know, the military, DOD bought thousands upon thousands of body bags because they were, they were fearful that we were going to have a lot of casualties. Um, so this focus on the air war, on softening the Iraqis was very important. Um, now back to the disagreement on BDA. Um, there's this disagreement by BDA. The, the administration didn't want to transition from the air war to the ground war until there was certainty that the Iraqis were treated enough. Um, but since there couldn't be any agreement, the basically CENTCOM was saying that they were treated a certain percentage. The CIA was saying, well, you know, we, we don't assess that. Um, we don't agree with the way you're, 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 you're accounting for the, 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 uh, the BDA. So this all leads to a discussion um, led by Brent Scowcroft, um, uh, who was a national security advisor at the time. You had the CIA director, some CIA officers. You, you had you know, General Schwarzkopf, um, General Powell. Uh, of course, Schwarzkopf is in theater. Um, you had, you had uh, uh, Vice Admiral Mike McConnell, who would later be become the DNI, sitting in there, and they're having a discussion about this disagreement on BDA. And, uh, uh, and at, the end of the, at the end of the day, they decided to go with General Schwarzkopf's and what CENTCOM was saying and defer to the commander on the ground. Now, um, 
one of the reasons I, I bring that up before, besides influencing the future uh, changes within the, the relationship, um, this created some in, important tension uh, between the, the uh, military and the combatant commander on the ground. Um, and so as we know, um, all this concern with BDA um, what ended up happening was that it, it became a, it was a hundred hour ground war, right? So it was, it was looked upon at the time, like why were, why were we so concerned, right? Um, but in, 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 and I should say, um, it, it really frustrated Schwarzkopf on, on the ground at the time, the commander. Um, now, years later, years later, when they, when they look back on this disagreement, what they found out was the CIA was actually more accurate. Um, but it didn't matter. Iraqis were, were decisively defeated. And so that was kind of the first tension within the relationship. Um, and I'll pause there for a second, Sam. Yeah, certainly a good, as good a description as any, uh, some of the effects that the Gulf War had. So as you've discussed, the BDA conflict kind of bleeds over a little bit after the war. And in this new strategic environment they find themselves in in the 1990s, there seem to be two factors at play. One is the incredible resource constraints. And the second is this almost reformist zeal that we see coming out of Congress. Can you talk a little bit about both of those? Yeah, I, I think the with the the kind of the 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 reform of Zill, I think was tied to um, you know something you mentioned earlier. The the well, it was tied to two things. I should say it was tied um, to a desire to have some savings. You know, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, there was this whole notion of a peace dividend, right? So you had this this desire for a peace dividend. Where can we look to save money? Where can we consolidate? Do we still need this large national security apparatus now that the Soviet Union is gone? Right. Um, you know, you, you know, you think you think about kind of the attitude of the time. You think of Francis Fukuyama's book, The End of History. Right. The democracies the West has won. So do you really need all of this, this military power? So this was driving the, the financial side was driving a little bit. Um, and then on the on the on the other side, which is you can't really separate from the financial side, um, it was kind of this you know this frustration with the um, with I should say a desire to um, have some savings, you know where can we make the cuts right? Um, and so there was this um, desire to say, okay, can we have the agency? Um, and others, you know, provide more support to the warfighters so we can have some cost savings. Um, and, and, you know, kind of back to the, the BDA thing and the relationship at that time, I think it's very important. Um, I had mentioned that Schwarzkopf is very, very frustrated with um, the disagreement on uh, BDA. Um, after the war, he was very voiceful about his disappointment in the intelligence support that he received. And he was going out making these comments and talking about how there's a lack of national intelligence support to the commander on the ground. Now, although he was out there saying this, he wasn't really articulating reality. Um, if you look at Desert Storm, it was actually a pretty impressive bringing together of national intelligence, of all intelligence resources to support the warfighter. Uh, so a few things as an example. Um, this is a time when you started having joint intelligence centers. This was a time where you started having national intelligence support teams. If you look to see the, you know, um, I mentioned uh, Admiral McConnell, who was the J-2 at the time. If you look to see what he, in collaboration with the NSA and others, what he put together to support 
uh, Schwarzkopf is pretty impressive. In fact, so, so impressive that you had individuals like Colin Powell saying never has a battlefield commander had this level of intelligence support. But if you think back, um, well, you know, looking back on Schwarzkopf, um, with the victory, Schwarzkopf was very, very popular. Um, there was actually talk of trying to award him and General Powell a fifth star. You know, so he's very popular. So here was this, this um, victorious hero coming back. You know, um, they're doing ticker tape parades in New York. I believe there's one in Los Angeles. He, he's, he just signed a, you know, a, a book. And, and while all this is going on, he's very popular. He is making these complaints about national intelligence support to him. And so that piques the curiosity of Congress also, right? And so you have this dual thing about we need savings, you also have, you know, and, and we can afford to have some savings. We can afford to focus domestically on the economy. Um, and you can, you can also do that because it's the end of the Cold War. There's no longer the, you, the, the Soviet threat as much. Um, so those were kind of the two things that, that were, were, were driving it. Um, and as I mentioned, it kind of came the confluence of the two things. Now, interestingly, um, you know, through, through my research, um, I, I, one of the stories I found fascinating by Schwarzkopf is um, when he was out there saying all this stuff, you had some individuals, um, some congressmen who were supportive of the intelligence community who were, were, were becoming a little concerned. And so, um, the, for example, Senator John Warner, who was on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence at the time, um, his office reached out to, to Schwarzkopf's um, people and said, hey, the, 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 the senator would like to meet with General Schwarzkopf because he you know, wants to discuss General Schwarzkopf's concerns with intelligence support during the war. Um, and uh, what ended up happening, according to some interviews I did, was when this, uh, well, first of all, uh, uh, Swarskoff's people um, told uh, Warners that the general's pretty busy and uh, wouldn't be able to, to make, make a meeting, you know, fit in, fit in the schedule. Uh, so Warner's office calls uh, uh, Secretary of Defense at the time Cheney's office, and then all of a sudden some white space opens up on, uh, on the, uh, uh, the, the Swarskoff's calendar. Um, before Schwarzkopf has the meeting, his, his J2, um, you know, speaks to him and says, hey, let me tell you the entire story of the intelligence support to you, to the combatant commander, to the warfighter. Um, and so when he goes to the meeting with Warner, um, he starts off the meeting by saying, hey, I've thought a little more about intelligence support to the warfighter. Um, you know, maybe I was a little too critical, you know, it was a little more than, than, than I thought, you know, uh, uh, and, you know, I maybe was a little wrong about it. So Warren said, Hey, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you know, can you go out and can you tell the rest of the, you know, everyone else, the media that that's the case and he's, you know, can you correct what you have said? And he said, you know, he could do that. Schwarzkopf could do that. Um, but he never did. In fact, not only didn't he say it, he actually doubled down on the criticism of the CIA and others. Uh, in fact, in his book, the one he was paid, you know, uh, I can't remember how many million for, but a pretty hefty sum at the time. Um, he said that if it was still up to the CIA's BDA assessment, that they would uh, um, be, still be waiting behind the berm to invade. Um, and so you have this conquering hero making the complaint and then going back a little bit to Congress at the time, um, Congress, especially the individuals who were cautioning George H.W. Bush not to attack, were now scratching their heads saying, why was intelligence so wrong about how long this war would be? Um, and the, you know, in, in the intelligence folks, what they were saying was, well, we were just telling you the Iraq's capability. We weren't telling you, 
you know, um, we can only assess capability. It's, it's more difficult to, you know, uh, assess motivation and then, you know, the fight within, within the military. But those two things really kind of created this condition in the, in the 90s um, to relook intelligence. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And that trend kind of continues as we move into conflicts like the Balkans and enforcing the no-fly zone in Iraq. No, it does. It does. And, and, and um, it does continue. And, and, and you know, from my look... <sighs> And what I highlight in the book, and, and I really credit a lot of the kind of leadership of both the Department of Defense and the, the uh, intelligence community at the time. And so, you know, I mentioned Cheney earlier. Um, Bob Gates was, becomes a CIA director, you know, um, shortly after the Gulf War. And um, he, Gates and, and uh, Cheney work close together to set the conditions to ensure that they increase support. And I think my read on it, um, a, a couple things, but, um, you know, first of all, I, 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 one of the things I like, uh, I highlight in the book is the importance of individuals. And, you know, and I say that because if you look at someone like Gates and the experience that he brought to bear in his, in his foresighting and the kind of his understanding of, you know, um, both politics, the intelligence community, um, you know, he was, he was kind of a, a, a driving factor behind the relationship, setting the conditions for the relationship to get closer, uh, become stronger. And I think he did that because he realized that because of the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, because of this peace dividend, because of the, the criticisms of the Gulf War, that the, there had to be some changes within the intelligence community, um, internally driven, or they were going to be externally forced upon them. Um, and so what I mean by, by externally forced, at the time, um, in, in the early 90s, before some of these changes were, were put into place, you had the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence both had legislation in place to, to, to change uh, the intelligence community. Um, and so, for example, you know, there, there was the um, proposal for the establishing the Director of National Intelligence. Um, there was a proposal... For establishing associate director of military support, which which it it was established or something very similar, and I'll get to in a second. But I think uh, Gates realized that hey, um, if we don't do something, uh, then it's going to be forced upon us. And so let us take the initiative and look at it. Um, he had he had also, you know, um, and I and, and I'll give I should say I give credit to Cheney also. Because Cheney realized and was very astute and realized after Desert Storm that, um, you know, there was actually a quote that he said to his, uh, his intelligence advisor, a guy named Rich Haver, who I interviewed for the book. Um, he said, hey, Rich, I want you to do a review of intelligence support provided to the warfighter and intelligence during, you know, the, the lead up to the war, because, you know, if intelligence is, is, you know, when politicians are this wrong and this goes back to the body count and stuff, it's going to be looked at as an intelligence failure. And so um, he was astute enough to also realize, Hey, we need to think about this. Those two people come together, Cheney and Gates to really work as a team to improve the relationship between the, the CIA and the DOD. And as you mentioned, um, it set the groundwork 
for the, the some of the stuff we saw in in the 90s the the balkans uh somalia uh stuff like that and so what i mean by the groundwork the structure um out of these the the changes uh what came out of the changes were such things as the creation of um the office of military affairs um you know i um this was a two-star position that originally was under the director of operations whose whose focus was on ensuring and coordinating with the cia for that intelligence support to the warfighter so those things were developed um and um and in and, and you really saw um the value of that when you start early on um, when you start to look back at, as I mentioned, Somalia, the Balkans and stuff. SM, I think one good example of the, the change in the relationship was in Somalia in 1993. Um, you know, one, one, one of the, the first casualties was actually a CIA paramilitary officer in Somalia. And the thing that was interesting about that is it was a CIA officer who was um, providing the mission was, was providing support to the military. And so, you know, where, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, it was a CIA mission focused on that intelligence support to the warfighter on that force protection type of stuff that was really being pushed for in the nineties. And so, um, or in the, you know, late eighties and nineties. And so I think that was, you know, a, a great example of how this relationship changed. Um, when you go into other places in the Balkans and stuff, you also see this relationship change and you see more of a relationship on the ground. You see the CIA analyst involved in, in targeting process, stuff that you had not seen before. Now, um, you know, with the, at the same time, um, you, you have the, you know, the, the transition around the same time, you have the, the transition to the Clinton administration also. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I mentioned the importance of individuals a little bit ago. I, I mentioned, I mentioned Gates, um, I mentioned Cheney. Um, a lot of the, the changes that they identified in the transition to bring the, 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 the two closer together, um, a lot of that was, you know, in their heads. Um, and, and to be honest, through the discussion with, that I had with 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 uh, with Rich Haver, um, as I mentioned earlier, he was the intelligence advisor to to Cheney. Um, there was really a thought initially when they first started this that they were going to be able to carry these changes out, and so there was going to be a second term for the Bush administration, right? Um, the Bush after the Gulf War, very popular. Um, so there was there was no expectation that they they wouldn't, um, but of course, as we mentioned earlier, the you know the it became about the economy. It was no longer about national security. Um, you know there was that 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 famous um, quip during the the, the the Clinton campaign. You know it's it's the economy, stupid. Um, and so when Clinton won and, and took office, um, a lot of that thought of what they were doing with the intelligence community, what they were doing with the CIA DOD relationship, why they were doing certain things was lost. Now, with that said, the, what I found interesting is even when the Clinton administration took over um, and even with the, the focus on domestically, you still had this discussion and this, 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 this push towards increased intelligence support to the warfighter. Um, and so if you look at stuff like the, the National Performance Review, the Gore Commission, um, that focused very broadly on, you know, um, uh, relooking government, um, they actually mentioned intelligence support to the warfighter. Um, now, in, in that case, it was, you know, it, it seems to be more of a mention out of cost savings and reduction in spending. Um, and then one of the other important things during this period before 9-11, that I think is very important is Presidential Decision Directive 35, which what um, signed by, by Clinton. What PDD 35 said is in times of war, the intelligence community's main focus is on supporting the warfighter. 
Um, now that is doable when you had stuff. I would say it's doable, although it, it was it would stress it was stressing an organization like the CIA who was undergoing you know like twenty five percent cuts uh, during the nineties. Um, but it was still doable. It was still manageable when it was these you know smaller operations other than war. You know, it was the Somalias, the Balkans, stuff like that. Um, after 9-11, when war became more of a permanent fixture in American society, the focus of PDD-35 on intelligence, you know, the primary focus is of national intelligence support in the warfighter became much more difficult to the intelligence community or for the intelligence community. And as we discussed with um, some of the reforms of the 1980s, your book really does a good job of identifying these trends outside of the usual epics that we use to define these eras. But of course, we do have to talk about 9-11 and the war on terror, and there's a lot of ground I'm sure to cover there. But what are maybe two or three of the key takeaways of how this intelligence and military relationship solidified over the first decade of the war on terror era. Yeah, so I think you know the the I, I, my my first observation, and, and this is one of my key points in the book, is you know um, the decisions in the 1990s, the creation of the Office of Military Affairs, the 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 transition to the Associate Director of Military Affairs, these uh, structures that were put into place once 9/11 occurred. It provided some ground somewhere to begin from. And I argue that, you know, yes, the 1990s in some regards might have been a lost decade. There was, there was budget recut, uh, reductions, peace dividends. But those decisions, those organizational decisions that were made provided um, grounds for the uh, foundation for the relationship to grow between the CIA and DOD after 9-11 and in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I think that would be the, the, the first thing. Without that, I think it would have taken, it would have taken a longer time and we would have seen more friction. And so my first, my first observation would be like, we, we, we cannot ignore the value of the choices made in the 1990s. Now, with that said, I think after 9-11, you know, 9-11 really, if you, if you look at the, you know, if, if you look at the collapse of the, of the Soviet Union um, and you go back to what started this discussion about the 1947 National Security Act, both the modern day Department of Defense um, and, uh, and the CIA, they were developed and their identities were shaped by the Cold War. You know, it was we the, the 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 their identities were shaped by the adversary of the Soviet Union. Now, with that ripped away in the 1990s, I would argue there was this kind of this lost identity, this lost sense of purpose. Not saying they weren't busy and they had other things to focus on, but there was still some grappling with you know what is the role um, after in, in 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 you know what is our identity after the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? I would say throughout the United States, there was there was this kind of perspective. Now, the 9-11 in uh, the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan kind of gave a common purpose. Counterterrorism gave a common purpose. Um, and so, um, it, you know, it provided a, a, a you know, it, it provided a need to collaborate more. Um, it provided a purpose on the on the ground. Um, and so I would say those those are the two now. Um, now, with that said, this relationship wasn't smooth sailing all the time. It was bumpy. And I think this goes back to the importance of, of, of partnerships and relationships or the importance of individuals in how relationships grows and changes. Um, but, you know, if you look at Rumsfeld at the time, um, Rumsfeld, um, uh, he, he, he had a rather tense relationship with with the agency um and so you look at you look at afghanistan for example you know um the the the, the big dod was not as ready to go into afghanistan and, and they, they were reliant and dependent on the on the cia um 
uh, and th- this frustrated, this frustrated Rumsfeld. He would he would often comment that you know uh, the DoD was like the baby bird waiting for the CIA to feed it a worm, um, and he wanted to have this self sufficiency. He wanted not to be reliant on, on the CIA, um, and so what that created was that created tension, um, and where. It, you know, one of the areas that created tension is, is when we, you know, declared, and this kind of goes back a little bit to the, the, um, my comment on the PDD 35 and how that was manageable until, you know, war became an every, uh, you know, uh, the norm for the United States. Um, when they declared the war on terror, and then when they declared that the globe was a battlefield, Right. Um, Rumsfeld started making decisions um, and doing activity and, and couching them under intelligence preparation of the operating environment. And that led to some tension with the CIA because um, around the globe, South America, for example, there was some stepping on toes um, in regards to operations and not in not deconfliction. Um, now, this this was this was worked through. Um, but the relationship was always tense with Rumsfeld. Once Rumsfeld leaves and you have individuals like Gates come in, you know, uh, um, uh, Bob Gates comes in again into the picture uh, as the secretary of defense this time. Um, you have General, uh, uh, General Hayden come in. Um, you have uh, General Clapper as USDI. Um, the relationship really started to improve and change and, and, and grow. Um, and so that was at the policy level. Now, on the ground, which I think really helped the relationship also, was you had these different institutions who were operating next to each other or reliant, and there's this kind of uh, uh, affinity that's growing at the grassroots level, you know, um, and that helped develop the relationship. There's a familiarity with each other, um, especially when you look at organizations like Special Operations Command and the CIA, there's this familiarity. But even beyond that, you know, when you start having like crisis operational liaison teams from the CIA operating, you know, with with conventional forces, this grows a relationship. Um, and so, you know, overall, Iraq, Afghanistan, the war on terror creates a condition that brings the organization together and closer, but the foundation, I would argue, was set years earlier before the towers ever went down. And again, that's certainly nothing if not an original thesis. So I want to ask, we frame much of this discussion and you frame much of the book within the context of counterterrorism. But now we have this so-called pivot to great power competition or whatever your buzzword of choice is. This idea, like we said in the beginning, that a couple of decades of neglect of the threat of Russia and China, coupled with short-term budgeting decisions and a focus on ancillary theaters of operation, left us unprepared to face these nation-state competitors. So I want to ask you briefly, do you still see that narrative as true? And where do you see the DOD-CIA relationship heading in this new strategic competition? Yeah, so I, 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 I think the narrative of, of us broadly, you know, national security trying to grapple with, you know, great power competition, uh, great power competition, integrated deterrence. I think it's still something I think, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated um, with you look how our organizations evolve. Uh, you look at the intelligence community evolved um, as response to the security environment. So I think right now we're really trying to grapple with with the security environment. Now I would, you know, from my understanding and speaking with people, um, you know, the the, the relationship uh, is is still pretty strong between the the the, the CIA and the military. Um, you know, the last twenty years, um, as as mentioned before, strengthened it. Um, there's components in play, there's structures in play where we will keep the relationship going. Now, with that said, you know, it's not going to be the interactions is not at the same level as it would have been, you know, during the, 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 the um, uh, 
the days of Iraq and Afghanistan when, you know, we had hundreds of thousands of forces uh, in, in either of those two countries. But I think the relationship is still good. Now, in, in regards to kind of shifting the, the focus, and I think it's related, um, you know, and I'll use, you know, I, I think this is something that um, it's, it's still both organizations, and I'll speak about them separately, or, you know, my observation are still kind of grappling with. So, you know, if you look back to when Gina, Gina Haspel was the, the CIA director, you know, um, she made the push and, 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 and they said that, hey, we need to, you know, get a little more away from counterterrorism. Uh, we need to focus more on the 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 you know the, the the China the Russias of the world, and so you know they 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 she started pushing them in the, in that direction, um, you know after after the you know withdrawal from Afghanistan and some of the stuff that happens it was always you know you you would hear some discussions about well does the agency need to have more of a role but I, I think you know my understanding is they've they've you know done a pretty good job shifting their focus. But, you know, counterterrorism is always going to, you know, it's, it's always going to have a, 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 a role um, necessarily, you know, so, but, you know, just to what degree. But I think they're, they're a shift. I think actually for the military, it's, it's, it's you know, my observation, it's a little more um, of a challenge. And this isn't really involved in the relationship with the CIA. It's just, you know, the, the, the military has grown... Uh, we became, uh, I shouldn't say we anymore, the military became used to fighting wars, to doing counterterrorism, to doing direct action missions. And now we're trying to figure out what we mean by great power competition. What is the military's role in integrated deterrence? How do they go about it? Um, and, you know, in, 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 in my view, it's a much more difficult uh, a problem, and I'm not saying that Iraq and Afghanistan and 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 GWAT was not difficult, but I think it's intellectually different of a problem with this great power competition. Um, and I'm curious to see how this intellectual, what I see as an intellectual challenge, you know, how DOD deals with it, um, and whether or not they're intellectually prepared to deal with it. And I think we'll leave it there. The book, once again, is Subordinating Intelligence, the DOD-CIA Post-Cold War Relationship. It's available in softcover. The author is David P. Oakley. And David, thank you so much once again for talking today. For new books in national security, my name is Sam Cantor. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.